Well, this morning, friends, we're going to be continuing our series through the book of Matthew. Uh, If you've been with us for the last uh, few weeks or months, you know we've been going through uh, this series in Matthew, and we are uh, we're getting our way uh, well along through this series. We're coming towards the end, and today we're going to be picking up in Matthew chapter 21, uh, where we're going to read an interesting story uh, about Jesus Christ. And so I want to begin by reading this passage together this morning from Matthew chapter 21. We're going to be looking at verses 23 through 32. And then after we read this uh, story together, I want to come back and share some comments and observations about what's going on here in our text this morning. So if you would, follow along with me. You can either follow along on the screen or in your Bibles, uh, whatever works. Matthew 21, starting in verse 23. Jesus entered the temple courts. And while he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked. And who gave you this authority? Jesus replied, I will also ask you one question. If you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, where did it come from? Was it from heaven or from men? They discussed it amongst themselves and said, If we say from heaven, he will ask, Then why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, we are afraid of the people, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We don't know. Then he said, Neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. What do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, Son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? The first they answered. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. A couple of years ago, I had an opportunity to speak down at the University of Minnesota at their law school for an outreach event sponsored by the Christian Legal Society. I had been invited to give a presentation on the scientific evidence for intelligent design, and after my presentation, I opened the floor to questions from the audience. Well, one of the first students who stood up to question me obviously didn't appreciate the presentation I had just shared. I don't know if it was the evidence for a creator that she didn't like or if she took issue with the fact that I shared the gospel at the end of my presentation. Whatever the case, though, she was obviously very hostile to the Christian worldview that I had just presented. She grabbed the microphone from the events MC, and she confronted me. She said, Mr. Carlson... Why are you Christians always pushing your religion on other people? She said, why don't you just leave people alone? She said, people are happy. They've got their own beliefs. They've got their own religions. Tell me what is so special and unique about Jesus Christ. Well, friends, this is a very significant question. In fact, it's the most important question any of us could ask. And this isn't just a question that people are asking today, but it's a question that's been asked for over 2,000 years. 
In fact, it's essentially the same question we see the religious leaders confront Jesus with in our passage here today. To paraphrase verse 23, the chief priests and the elders say to him, Who do you think you are, Jesus? And what makes you so special? Now, to understand what's going on here, we need to go back and look at the context out of which this question arises. Chapter 21 of Matthew's Gospel begins with Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem on what has come to be known as Palm Sunday. Matthew tells us in verses 8 and 9 that as Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, fulfilling the Messianic prophecy of Zechariah 9.9, the people spread out palm leaves on the road in front of him and shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David! The word Hosanna has a twofold meaning. It was a plea for salvation, but also a word of praise, acknowledging God's promise to send a deliverer. The term Son of David was a clear reference to the Messiah and the Old Testament's foreshadowing that the Savior would be of the royal line of King David. So here the people of Jerusalem are welcoming Jesus into the city with shouts of praise declaring Him to be the promised Messiah, the Deliverer of God's people. We then come to verses 12-15 through 15, where Jesus enters the temple, the focal point of the Jewish religion, and He literally cleans house. The religious leaders had set up a nice little racket for themselves where in order to purchase a sacrificial offering for the forgiveness of sins, people had to first exchange their Roman money for special temple money. And of course, there was a fee involved in this. So these temple money changes were profiting by ripping people off as they sought to make their lives right before the Lord. And Jesus called them on this. He overturns their tables. Money's flying everywhere. And in verse 13, he says, My house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. Well, as you can imagine, the common folk love this. And again, in verse 15, they echo their earlier shouts of praise. But all of this wasn't sitting well with the Jewish religious leaders. As we've seen throughout our series in Matthew, they've already had a number of run-ins with Jesus, but now Jesus is bringing his game to their turf. And it's one thing to have some ragtag prophet questioning their authority and the religious status quo up in the backwater towns of northern Israel, but now here he is showing up in their house, raising a ruckus, And the people of Jerusalem are loving it. The religious leaders can't just let this go. And so the next day when Jesus returns to the temple, the religious leaders confront him with the question we observed earlier in verse 23. By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? In other words, who do you think you are, Jesus? And what makes you so special? That is the question, isn't it? 
It's the question that student at the U of M was getting at. And it's the question that all of us must deal with. Who is Jesus Christ? And what makes him so special that we should submit our lives to him? Well, the religious authorities weren't exactly sincere in asking this question. See, they had already made up their minds about Jesus, and they certainly weren't going to submit to any carpenter from Nazareth. So Jesus either needed to be discredited or gotten rid of. And so in asking this question, the religious leaders were really hoping to trap Jesus. He'd either have to admit that he had no authority granted to him by the religious authorities, which would thereby discredit him in the eyes of the people, or he'd have to say that his authority came from God, which would be considered blasphemy in Jewish law. And this was punishable by death according to Jewish law. You see, these guys were very shrewd in asking this question of Jesus. And they thought that they had laid the perfect trap to get rid of him. Now, in verses 24 and 25, it may appear initially that Jesus is being evasive, telling the religious authorities that he'll answer their question if they first answer one of his. Verse 24, I will also ask you one question. If you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. However, when Jesus asks his question, it becomes apparent that the answer to the question of Jesus' authority and uniqueness is clearly found in the answer to Jesus' question here in verse 25. John's baptism, where did it come from? Was it from heaven or from men? In referring to John's baptism here, Jesus is not only speaking of the act of baptism and his call to repentance, but really the whole message and ministry of John the Baptist. Prior to John the Baptist, Israel had seen no prophets for over 400 years. And then comes John the Baptist, calling the people of Israel to repent in preparation for the coming Messiah. In Matthew 3, verse 2, he declared, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In Matthew 3, 10 and 11, John told the people of Israel, As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And then in John chapter 1, 29 through 30, John the Baptist points clearly to Jesus as the promised Messiah. The next day he saw Jesus coming to him and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Friends, no mere human being could do that. So you need to understand this. Jesus is not simply being tricky here by answering the religious leader's question with a different question. Jesus is saying, if you answer this question, then you've got the answer to the question you just asked me. If you answer rightly that John's ministry was from God and John acknowledged me to be the Messiah, 
Well, there you go. You got your answer. Now remember, friends, these guys had already rejected John the Baptist. They didn't need to repent. They were the spiritual elite. They were the guys who kept and enforced the spiritual laws of Israel. They were the ones who got to say who was in and who was out of the kingdom of God. However, Jesus has now put these guys in a quandary with his question. If they said no... John's ministry was not from God, these religious authorities would risk the people of Israel turning on them and their leadership. For the people all held John to be a prophet. But if they said, yes, John's ministry was from God, then they knew Jesus was just going to ask them, then why don't you accept me? Because John testified to me. Now picture this. These guys were supposed to be the spiritual authorities of Israel. The guys with all the answers. And I can imagine the sheepish look on their faces and the astonishment of the crowd that was watching as the only response they could muster was, we don't know. We don't know. Now please understand this, friends. These guys weren't rejecting Jesus because of a lack of evidence. They knew the testimony of John the Baptist. They had seen Jesus' miracles. They had heard his teaching. They saw how he had lived his life. They had seen the prophecies of the Old Testament that had been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. They had even heard God's own voice declare from heaven at the baptism of Jesus, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. The answer to the question of Jesus' authority and uniqueness was obvious, but the religious authorities didn't want to admit it. Matthew Henry's commentary on this passage puts it this way, Those who will not see shall not see. It's not that there wasn't anything for these religious authorities to see, it's that they didn't want to see it. It was a matter of their wills. They did not want to see the truth because they did not want to bow to Jesus' authority. The problem was not with the evidence. The problem was with their hearts. And the sad reality is that 2,000 years later, most people in our world still fail to, the, fail to acknowledge the authority and uniqueness of Jesus Christ. Why? I would submit that it's not because Christianity cannot stand up to the intellectual scrutiny of the skeptics. The fact of the matter is, Christianity is the most scientifically, historically, and philosophically consistent and verifiable religion in the whole world. As my father, Dr. Ron Carlson, used to say, wherever we explore, whether it be the macrocosm of astronomy or the microcosm of biochemistry, wherever we discover truth, it is always consistent with God's nature and God's Word, the Bible. There is no contradiction. A few years ago, I had an opportunity to sit down, with co- sit down for coffee with a local professor from a college here in the Twin Cities. He was an ardent atheist, an evolutionist, 
and very much a critical skeptic of the Christian faith. He had heard me interviewed on a local radio station earlier that year, and so he got in touch with me, I guess because he wanted to try and persuade me of what he believed was the absurdity of my faith. Well, we had an interesting conversation for about two hours. During our time together, this professor made an interesting statement. He said to me, Jason, you know what the problem is with you Christians? You ever heard somebody say something like that before? He said, Jason, the problem with you Christians is you just have faith. How many of you ever heard that one? Well, in reply to him, I said, you know, it's very interesting that you'd say that. For the past 30 minutes, you've just shared your atheistic worldview with me. And you went on at length explaining how roughly 15 billion years ago, the universe exploded into existence out of nothing. And you went on to explain then how out of this explosion of nothing came everything and eventually all life as we know it today. And I said to this man, I said, Sir, could I just ask you a couple of questions? I said, first of all, could you explain to me how does nothing explode? And then secondly, I asked him, how does everything Everything in the universe, the stars, the planets, the sun, earth, the oceans, the mountains, the forests, the animals, how does everything come from nothing? Well, friends, I kid you not, this Ph.D. professor, his answer to me was, well, Jason, we have to assume by faith that somehow this took place. My jaw almost dropped and hit the table in front of me. I kid you not. We have to assume by faith that somehow this took place. You see, friends, and what I went on to explain to this professor is this. Everyone has faith. Everyone has faith, no matter your religion or even your lack of religion. We all have faith. The question is, what are you putting your faith in and do you have a valid and reasonable basis for your faith? You see, we all have faith. And when it comes to biblical Christianity, we're not making a blind leap of faith. Okay? This isn't wishful thinking here. In biblical Christianity, we have a faith that is rooted in history consistent with science, confirmed by archaeology, verified by eyewitness testimony, supported by thousands of ancient biblical manuscripts, affirmed by hundreds of fulfilled prophecies, championed by countless martyrs, and powerfully demonstrated in numerous lives changed, cultures transformed, and societal evils abated throughout history and around the world. Friends, people do not reject the message of Christianity today because the evidence isn't on our side. The evidence is there for all who wish to see it. Rather, as I shared earlier, the real issue, friends, is with the heart. And will we submit to the authority of Jesus Christ? A few years ago, my father, who was a fairly well-known Christian apologist, 
held a week of special outreach meetings for Campus Crusade at Duke University in North Carolina. Over the course of a week, he shared the truth of the Christian worldview and the message of the gospel with hundreds of students and faculty who came to his presentations on the reasons to believe in the Christian faith. On this final night, a professor there at Duke University asked my father if he'd meet him for breakfast the next morning. That next day, as they sat together in an IHOP there at Duke University, this professor, who was an atheist, he said to my father, Ron, I am convinced that everything you shared this week is absolutely true. But he went on to tell my father, but I'm still going to profess and teach my atheism. Well, my father was obviously mystified by this statement, and he asked this professor why. And this professor from Duke University said to my father, Ron, because it's morally comfortable. He said, as long as I believe that we're alone in the universe and I'm nothing more than a product of random evolutionary chance, I can live my life any way I please. He went on to say, but as soon as I admit that there is a God, then I become morally accountable to that God. And he said, Ron, I don't want to be morally accountable to anyone. This was a Ph.D. professor at Duke University. How sad. But such a common position for so many people, even if they're not as honest as this professor. For a whole different group of people, the authority of Jesus is rejected not because of any moral concerns and not because the message of the gospel is too difficult to embrace, but rather it's the simplicity of the gospel that's a stumbling block for many. Some of you know that for about the past six months I've been engaged in an ongoing conversation with a local Jehovah's Witness friend. One of the key points of difference that we've been discussing has revolved around the nature of salvation and the role of works. You see, Jehovah's Witnesses believe that we must prove the sincerity of our faith by doing good works for Jehovah. And specifically, they believe we do this by going door-to-door witnessing. The average Jehovah's Witness will spend 8 to 10 hours a week going door-to-door witnessing, trying to prove the sincerity of their faith to Jehovah. But you see, they're never quite sure they're doing enough, and so they strive, and they strive, and they strive. That's very sad. What I've been sharing with my Jehovah's Witness friend, though, is that the Bible says nothing about proving the sincerity of our faith by doing good works. Rather, as Ephesians 2, 8, 9 declares, For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. See, friends, this is the beauty of the gospel message. God has offered us a free gift of forgiveness and a relationship with Him. And that comes by putting our faith in the saving work of Jesus Christ alone. Nothing else. Salvation is a gift. 
You cannot earn it. You cannot work for it. You cannot buy it. It's a gift. And friends, Jesus plus anything else is not the biblical gospel. The first time I shared this with my Jehovah's Witness friend, he said to me, but Jason, that's too easy. (laughs) It's too easy. You see, friends, one of the greatest lies of Satan is getting us to believe that we can or must do something to earn our own salvation. And it's this lie that has ensnared billions of people around the world in a myriad of false man-made religious systems trying to prove their worthiness to God. The lie is that there's no way grace alone is enough. And it convinces us to take our eyes off of Jesus Christ, believing we can make our own way spiritually. What's the bottom line in all these situations? With the professor from Duke with my Jehovah's Witness friend, with the religious leaders of Jesus' day. Friends, the bottom line for all who fail to acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord is ultimately pride. People harden their hearts to the truth for various reasons and with many different excuses. But ultimately, it boils down to pride. They do not want to bow the knee and surrender their lives to Jesus Christ. See, friends, with Jesus, salvation is a free gift, but it's unconditional surrender. Like the popular song by Chris Tomlin says, we raise our white flag. We surrender all to you. All for you. And friends, when we come to Jesus, we don't get to negotiate terms. Jesus bids us all, freely come. Everyone, freely come to the cross. But we may only do so if we're willing to fully surrender our hearts, our will, and our pride to Him and His Lordship over all areas of our lives. This is why Jesus told the parable that followed this encounter with the religious leaders in Matthew 21. He wanted these men and all else who were listening to truly understand what it means to yield to God's authority. Take a look at verse 28. What do you think? There was a man who said to, who had two sons. He went to the first and said, Son, go work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? The first they answered. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to show you the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. Jesus is saying here to the religious leaders of Israel, You are like the son who said, I will, sir, but then did not go into the vineyard. These guys were all talk and no action. They claimed to be the spiritual leaders of Israel. Yet in the end, their hearts were far from God. 
And to the contrary, Jesus said it was those who submitted to God's will with repentant hearts, even those who had initially rejected Him, who would enter the kingdom of God. One commentary I read this week said this about this parable. Submission to God's authority in Christ demands more than mere words. It is a call to radical transformation through faith and obedience to Him. The God who sees our hearts is never impressed with outward profession that does not translate into hearts bent into submission to Christ as Lord. You see, what God desires is our full allegiance. Being a Christian is not simply about saying yes to God on Sunday and then living like hell the rest of the week. And there's no such thing, friends, as sitting on the fence when you're a follower of Jesus Christ. You know, a lot of people think that being a Christian is simply about praying a prayer and then you're good to go. And they sit on this fence with one leg dangling in the ways of Jesus and the other leg dangling in the ways of the world. And they think, hey, I'm all good. I got my fire insurance over here. I can do what I want over here. And they sit on this fence. Friends, you need to understand something. Every fence has an owner. And Satan owns that fence. The good news of this parable, though, is that it doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. God's grace is big enough for you. But you need to get off that fence. And you need to say, Lord, my life is yours. I submit to you. Mold me. Show me the areas where I need to grow. And use me for your plans and purposes. Whatever they might be. Now friends, don't mistake what I'm saying here this morning and think that God is looking for perfection out of us. That's not what this parable is about and you won't find that anywhere else in Scripture. Jesus is simply saying again what He said already in this series in Matthew. You will know His followers by their fruit. And so the question we must ask is this. Does my life bear the fruit of one who submitted to Christ and is guided by His Holy Spirit. Now friends, for some of you, that might mean celebrating that first little apple blossom. For others of you, you might be full of fruit, branches hanging to the ground. But regardless of where you are on your journey with Christ, the evidence of a life that is submitted to Him is that it will be characterized by a heart that yearns for Him and is increasingly bearing good fruit, along with a corresponding and increasing desire to prune whatever's there that's rotten. What are we to do with this teaching today? Let me close by offering three encouragements this morning. Number one, if you've never evaluated the claims of Jesus Christ, you need to do so. Examine the question we explore today. Who was Jesus Christ? And what makes Him so special? As C.S. Lewis once observed, He was either a liar, a lunatic, or He truly was the Lord. If you've never examined the evidence for, the, for yourself, 
you owe it to yourself to examine and learn more about Jesus Christ. A great starting point would be one of our small groups we'll be offering this next year, classes like Christianity Explored or The Truth Project. If you can't wait that long, I'd recommend some good resources like Lee Strobel's book, The Case for Faith, or Josh McDowell's More Than a Carpenter. But examine that question. Who was Jesus Christ and what makes him so special? Secondly, this morning, if you're here today and you believe that Jesus truly was who he claimed to be, God in human flesh, our Savior and Lord, but maybe you've been making excuses for why you don't need him or why you haven't yet submitted your life to him, friend, I'm going to shoot straight with you right here, right now. You need to stop putting him off. And you need to get your life right with Jesus right here today. Friends, it is literally insane to risk your eternity because you think you've got things figured out. Maybe you think there's more time. Maybe you think you've got some worldly living left to do. Maybe you think you're going to be fine because you're basically a good person. Whatever your excuse is today, it's baloney. And you need to confess your sins and start living for Jesus today. Tomorrow is not guaranteed. Believe me. I wrote about in your bulletin today. My dad lied down to take a nap a year ago last Saturday, thinking everything was fine, thinking he was in perfect health, only 61 years old. Ten minutes later, he was gone. Do not miss your opportunity to do what you know in your heart God wants you to do. Give your life to him here today. You will never regret it. I promise you that. And then lastly, this morning, for those of us who've put our trust in Jesus Christ and desire to fully submit our lives to him, I'd simply encourage you to ask the Lord today to reveal to you what areas in your life are still not fully submitted to him. Ask him to show you where you've got a foot dangling over the fence. And when he reveals that to you, and he will reveal that to you, confess that sin, and then know that you're forgiven. 1 John 1.9, when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive you of your sins. Confess your sins, know you're forgiven, and then ask God for the grace you need to begin to grow and to walk in victory in that area of your life. And friends, God will help you. He may do a supernatural work in your life. He may lead you to a resource here at church that can help you grow. Or He may use another brother and sister in Christ to come alongside you for encouragement and support. But God will not let you down if you turn to Him with a sincere heart. That too is a promise. Let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank You for who you are. We thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Lord, we thank you for what you did for us on the cross of Calvary. When you died and shed your blood for our sins, so that we could be forgiven and enter into a relationship with you, our Creator, our Savior, our Lord. Lord, we thank you for that free gift you offer us. Heavenly Father, there might be somebody here today who has never submitted their lives to you. 
There might be somebody here today who's thinking, I really need to get my life right with Jesus. Lord, if there's somebody here this morning who needs to put their trust in you for the very first time, who needs to submit to you as Lord for the very first time, I pray that even right here, right now, this morning, that they might just simply say a quiet prayer right now, a quiet prayer in their own heart. Very simple, Lord, I confess my sins, and I know I need you to be my Savior. I want to make you the Lord of my life. I submit to you, Jesus. Friends, it doesn't matter the words. They're really inconsequential. God knows your heart. If you confess your sins and submit to him as the Lord of your life, you shall be saved. Lord, for those of us who have put our trust in you and have submitted to you as our Lord, God, we pray that you might reveal to us those areas in our lives where we've been dangling a leg over that fence of compromise. We pray, Lord, that you might reveal to us this morning any areas in our lives where we haven't yet fully submitted to you and your authority as the Lord over all areas of our lives. God, if there's anything in us today keeping us from fully submitting to you, fully living for you, fully walking in a relationship with you, we pray, Lord, that you would reveal that to us and that we would confess that sin to you right here, right now, today. We would be able to leave here today knowing that we've been forgiven, that we've been cleansed, and that we'd be able to begin to walk in freedom, Lord. God, I just pray that all of us might have a renewed passion today to live for you as the Lord of our lives and that that renewed passion and desire to live for you as the Lord of all things in our lives would literally transform everything for us. It would transform the way we work, the way we relate to our families, our hobbies, our interests, our free time, that it would literally transform everything, Lord, for your glory and honor. And that we would truly know what you promised, Jesus, that in you is life and life to the full. And that comes by submitting to you as Savior and Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We love you. We commit our lives to you today. In Jesus' name we pray.